Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we ask you as we do each week to be here with us. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is um, Shiny Face Sunday. That's the official liturgical term. This is uh, the Sunday on which we have these two readings um, where people have shiny faces. Um, Moses, when he brings the Ten Commandments down from the mountain, has a shiny face, so shiny that the people of Israel can't even look at him. And then on the Mount of the Transfiguration, Jesus is said to be shiny, to be a dazzling white. I guess it's technically his clothes, not his face. So shiny person Sunday is what we celebrate um, this morning. (coughs) I want to talk about Christian's big problem. Now, we clearly have lots of problems that are sort of only tangentially related, if at all, to our Christianity specifically. Most of our problems are why we're Christians, not because we're Christians, right? Um, But we do have, I think, as Christians, a problem that we all share. And the problem, if I could um, talk about it theologically for a second, um, you've all heard me use the terms the law and the gospel again and again and again. You're probably sick and tired of it, but you know what? It's going to be a few more weeks. The problem that we have is a cake-and-eat-it-too sort of problem, right? We want to have our cake, and we want to eat it, too. I've never actually understood. What's the point of having a cake if you can't eat it? I mean, come on. If I didn't want to eat the cake, don't give me the cake. But as Christians, I feel like we, we hear a lot about these two kinds of things, right? The law, the rules, the requirements, how we ought to be, what we ought to be doing, the what would Jesus do's of life. And we also hear about the gospel, the good news, grace, and love. And we want to have both. And we want them to be sort of equal. We want them to be the two pillars upon which our religion stands, right? We like them both. We like the idea, of course we do, that we are loved by God because of nothing more than Jesus Christ. That sounds good. We like that. But we also like the rules. We like to to do the stuff we're supposed to do. We like to be able to say, I did that and it was good. We, we want to be able to have both of these things to be true at the same time. We know, of course, for instance, that we're not saved by the good works that we do. Right? Here at this church, at least, we've got that down. We're not saved by the good works that we do. We are saved by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. We got that. But what we don't got all the time is that what happens next? We are saved 
by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. But now what? What a lot of us do, what I do each and every day, is that the now what is where I invite the law, the rules, the requirements back in to the equation. Right? I am saved by the gospel, by grace, by love, by forgiveness, by mercy. But then I start to think about how I stay. And I stay by my works, by my good things that I do, by the law. And this is how I think Christians enable ourselves to think of these two things as being sort of equal, the law and the gospel. We get in by the gospel, we stay in by our obedience to the law. And I want to talk this morning about sort of two big reasons we're so addicted to the law, why we so like it, why we keep inviting it back into the equation. The first reason, <coughs> excuse my cough, the first reason is that we think that the law is going to just come in and show everyone else how well we're doing. This is what we imagine. Think of it as like a quiz for a good student, right? We're all good Christians here. I think, well, except for that one person, but we're all good Christians, and I think that we would all think that about each other. And so when you're good, you want a little quiz every once in a while to be able to show everyone else how good you are. It's not worth studying and working hard if you can't get the quiz back from the teacher and then sort of accidentally drop it on the floor so everybody around you can see the score that you got. Athletes know this. It's not good enough to just practice and practice all the time. You've got to get to the game. All your work comes to fruition when you can show the other team how good you are. We like this. We like to be tested. We like to be quizzed. We like competition. Because we think that when the chips are down, everyone is going to see how good we are. And this is true of us as Christians, just as it is true of us in all the other areas of our life. If we're good Christians, we want the opportunity to prove it. Of course, it doesn't always work out as well as we plan, but I'm going to talk about that in a second. The second reason that we are addicted to the law the reason that we keep on letting the law back into our life is a much better reason. It's because in the law, we recognize the face of God. The law is simply a description of God himself. Right? So, when the law says, be honest, it's because God is honest. When the law says, be pure, It's because God is pure. When the law says love, it's because God is love. The law, the rules of life, the requirements, the what would Jesus do's are just a picture of God. And so, of course, we want to hold on to it. That's the reason that we know this is true is because of our reading from Exodus this morning. When Moses comes down from the mountain, having just met with God, he's carrying the Ten Commandments in his hands, we read that his face is shining. 
His face is glorious to the point that the people of Israel can't even look at him. He is so glorious that he is literally repulsive. The people are repelled by him. He is too holy. And so he has to wear a veil over his face. And then it's not like it even wears off because, of course, they keep the commandments. And every once in a while, Moses goes into the Holy of Holies. And while he's in there with this image of God, he takes off the veil and sort of, you know, soaks in the rays. And then when he comes out, the Israelites say, oh, no, you did it. You did it again. Cover up. Veil yourself. And so, again... Moses puts a veil over his face because he has been in the presence of God. He has been communing with the law, these Ten Commandments, and they are so glorious that the reflected glory in Moses' face is such that he must cover it up or he will repel his own people from him. So these are the two reasons that we are addicted to the law, that we love the rules in our life. First, because we think the rules are just going to be a vehicle to show everyone else how good we are. And two, because the rules are, in fact, a reflection of the person of God. And so we want to keep that. So let's go back to our sort of formulations of the way we view our Christian lives. We know, we understand, that we are not saved by the law. We get that. We've rejected that, and good for us. But, now that we are saved by grace and the gospel, we let the law back in just a little bit to sort of help us show off a little bit, right? We are, the law comes first, and it shows us our need. For a savior. Then the gospel comes and provides us our savior. And then, as a sort of third step, we invite the law back in to grade our progress. We say, look at how well I'm doing Jesus. Look at what I did last week. Look at the score I got on my Christianity test. But there are two big, important reasons not to let the law back in. Even though we think it'll be good, and even though it's a picture of who God is, there are two good reasons not to let the law back in to the equation. And here they are. The first one is a very practical one. If you let the law back into your life, it will kill you. I'm not even exaggerating. (laughs) Look at St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians that we read from. He calls this the ministry of death. That's the first sentence that we read. Now, if the ministry of death, which is carved in letters on stone, he knows that the law will kill us. See, we think, and I looked... I looked this week to see which theologian said this originally. I called friends, I did exhaustive Google searches, and I couldn't find anything. So I'm taking credit. 
I didn't actually think of this. I heard this from someone else at some point, but I could not, I literally could not find who said this. <coughs> we think that the law is a kitten, cuddly, controllable, sweet. And so we let it out of the cage. We think this law is going to come back into my now redeemed Christian life and help me know what to do and help me show others how well I'm doing. We think the law is a kitten, and so we let it out of the cage. But then we realize, once it's out, that it is a lion, and it will devour us. Because, see, we think, we think of the law in the terms that I said earlier, like it's a quiz, right? Like we've been working really hard in class, and so we think it's about time that we got a quiz, so we can show off how good we are. It's tame, safe, controllable. But we forget what the real requirement of the law is. Unfortunately, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he tragically actually meant it. The standard is nothing short of perfection. And so when we let what we think is a kitten out of the cage, it is revealed to be a lion demanding nothing less than perfect perfection in our hearts, perfection in our minds, perfection in our souls, and failing that, it will devour us. So don't let the law back into your Christian life. It will eat you. But there's another reason not to invite the law back into our Christian lives. And it's a simple one. The Bible says not to. Again, our two readings from the New Testament this morning, uh, the letter from St. Paul to the Corinthians says, Sure, the law is glorious. Remember that the law was so glorious that Moses had to wear a veil. It was so glorious that the people of Israel could not even look at Moses from the reflected glory of the law. But then St. Paul says, but the gospel, the good news, is so much more glorious that it's as though the law didn't have any glory at all. It's the, uh, the flashlight at noon syndrome. Right? When your electricity goes out and you are searching through your house for the flashlight, you, the one flashlight you have, but you don't remember where you put it because you weren't expecting your power to go out, when you finally find it, it's glorious. And you desperately need that single beam of light. It's a lifesaver. But at noon, it's worthless. You can't even see it. And the glory of the gospel, the good news that we are saved by the grace and love of Jesus Christ, is so much more glorious than even the law that is a picture of God himself, that it is as though the law has no glory whatsoever. And then, 
we get the reading on the Mount of the Transfiguration. When Jesus goes to pray and he takes Peter and James and John with him, and he, he is transformed into this vision of dazzling white, and all of a sudden there are Moses and Elijah with him. These sort of three titans of the Bible, right? Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus Christ representing the gospel. And they're all three there. And Peter says, this is great. The law, the prophets, and the gospel all together in one place. He says, let's keep it like this. Let's build three dwellings, one for each of you. And we'll just sort of live here in this utopia forever. But Luke, of course, says that he didn't know what he was saying. Because as soon as he starts to suggest that the law and the prophets are sort of on some Way, on some level playing field with the gospel that Moses and Elijah should have equal houses to Jesus Christ, a great cloud comes and envelops them and they're terrified and the voice of God says, don't do that. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the cloud goes away. Jesus is there. Alone. Because Jesus is not one of three. Jesus will not be one of three. The gospel is not equal to the law and the prophets. The gospel is where it's at. The gospel is so much more glorious than the law and the prophets. It's as though the law and the prophets have no glory whatsoever. The moment Peter starts to say, yeah, let's keep all these things together, God says, no. This one is my son. This one is my chosen. Listen to him. Back to St. Paul. He's, he con- he um, compares, he contrasts, I should say, the ministry of death, which he says is the law. He says it's the ministry of condemnation to the gospel, which he says is the ministry of the Spirit or the ministry of justification. So we have condemnation and justification. Which one would you prefer? <laughs> right? Even the words, uh, would you prefer to be condemned or justified? Oh, I'll take justified. Thank you very much. When we look at our formulation of the Christian life, when we say the law comes first and shows us our need for a Savior, Then the gospel comes and shows us our Savior. But what next? This is what Peter is asking on the Mount of Transfiguration. What next? What do we do now? And God says, no. 
My first word was the law, but my final word is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. No further word necessary. The law comes first, and it is glorious because it is a picture of God. So glorious that the Israelites could not even look at the face of Moses. But then the gospel comes. The law comes and shows us our need for a Savior. The gospel comes and shows us our Savior. And it is so much more glorious that it totally outshines the law. The law is the glorious first word of God. But the gospel is the super glorious final word of God. And that word spoken through the mouth of Jesus Christ and true on the day he said it and forever is it is finished. Amen.